On this episode of the TechBench Podcast, we interview Robert F. Sullivan, Ph.D., otherwise known as Dr. Bob. Prior to being an independent consultant in the data processing industry, he worked at IBM for 32 years. During the interview, he explains what inspired the hot aisle, cold aisle equipment layout, some of the current problems that data center managers face, and so much more. Brace yourself. You're now entering the TechBench Podcast. This is Bob Sullivan, uh, 51 years in the business, and 32 years with IBM, and 10 years as a cult consultant to computer site engineering in the Uptime Institute. In the last nine years, uh, I've been on my own as a consultant and an eminent educator. So, <clears throat> I feel myself very lucky because I'm probably one of the probably the only person in the business, one of the few people in the world that both has a moniker and a trademark. The moniker is Dr. Bob. Everybody calls me Dr. Bob, and it has nothing to do with my PhD. If we do my PhD, it would be Dr. Sullivan. No, this was a uh, moniker given to me by an IBM customer who had just installed three and a half million dollars of IBM equipment, and it wasn't working properly. It wasn't failing, but it, it, the throughput wasn't on. And he refused to sign the check. And so they sent me in as a troubleshooter to find out what was wrong. And I spent an afternoon there and came up with a list, a full-page list of what was wrong in the data center. Walked into the CIO, data center manager's CIO's office and told Mr. Tedarucci, you have the worst data center I've seen in my life. Instead of coming across the desk and trying to throttle me, he said, thank you. And he said, at this point, at least I know what we have to do. And we're going to hire IBM to manage the program, the remediation and pointing to me, you are going to manage. <laughs> and so we did. We put together a team of <clears throat> the IBM service people as well as his contractors and his operations and facilities people. And they worked for six months to get that place up to speed. The first thing they had to do was remove a bus and tag cables that had completely filled the underfloor. The tiles would not sit down on stringers. It was so full. And there was a whole lot of other things. And when we were finished, his throughput was above IBM specifications, and he his energy uh, consumption was 30% less than it was when he started. And he went to many users groups, IBM and other users groups, and he had a pitch that he said, this is what I inherited. And this is what we did, and this is how it works now. And I have it all to thank this young engineer from IBM who I call Dr. Bob. He's the engineer that comes in and fixes sick data centers. <laughs> and it caught on within IBM, and now it's caught on around the world. So that's the moniker. And the trademark, of course, is my Australian uh, bush hat, the Outback hat. Kangaroo, and uh, with feathers in it. 
and I'm recognized around the world. I wear it every day in my life, and around the world I'm recognized. People come up, walk up to me down on the street, they walk up to me at restaurants, uh, on airplanes, uh, and say, Dr. Bob, how are you? Uh, Dr. Bob, thanks so much for coming today. We really appreciate taking the time to come and speak to us on our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a career of 51 years, and uh, how are we going to cram all in there? We're just going to have to hit the highlights. And we, I think we will as you, you go start going through your questions. So now how did the hat come about? We were in Australia. And so I was in Australia in 1996, and we were in Alice Springs. And uh, there was a... They were, we were there for the Henry Todd Regatta, which we don't have time to uh, do, but if you're interested, you know, just Google Henry Todd Regatta, Alice Springs. And they had a, uh, a flea market there. And uh, they had the uh, bush hats, racks of them. And I says, oh, and all I had was a floppy golf hat <laughs> to keep the sun off of me. I says, oh, i got to have one of those. Went over and negotiated and bought one for a ridiculously low price. Bought one, a second one in Sydney before we left, and I've probably gotten two or three more while trips to Australia, and the rest of my buy on the internet. <laughs> um, well, obviously, um, you mentioned that um, you, know, you work for IBM, but we know that uh, your career didn't start there. Um, so, um, you know, where did it start? At what point did you know that you were going to become a technologist or an engineer? Well, at the age of uh, seven or eight, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. And as I grew up, it, it became uh, apparent that I was interested in solids. Uh, mechanics, so uh, civil engineering, electrical engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, and I went more toward mechanical engineering, and then it was, where am I going to get an education? And through, I was in California, but uh, through field trips to San Francisco and college nights at high school, I met any number of engineers who were graduates of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago, and they all raved about the cooperative engineering program that Northwestern had. It took five years to get your degree, but you ended up with six three-month well-paid work experiences. And what that showed me, I thought I wanted to be a machine machine designer. And from that work, I saw what a machine designer did. I said, I don't want to be a machine designer. I just want, want to create things. I want to build things. And so that required more education. So I went to Stanford and got a master's degree in applied mechanics, which is the basic background of all the mechanical uh, disciplines. And I did well enough that I was invited to join the PhD program, which was nice because they would pay for it. They would pay for it. I thought, hey, I'll go to school as long as somebody else will pay for it. <laughs> and so I did, and spent another four years uh, to get my PhD. <clears throat> got a job with IBM. Now, I did an experimental thesis that dealt with interferometry and very fine interferometry where you didn't use monochromatic light. You had to use white light to measure separations distances, which just happened to turn out to be uh, a great background because IBM was developing the Winchester disk technology. And this was a disk technology. The previous disk technology had gotten to the point where their heads were flying over the disk surface at about 40 micro inches. 
but the head was about the size of a quarter, and they had to push on it with one pound of force in order to get it down to a spacing of 40 microinches. And that was just asking for disaster. So the slightest contamination, you had head crash. Well, the new technology was a head about the size, half the size of your small fingernail, pushed down with 10 grams, and it was going to be in contact. The head was going to be in contact with the disc at all times. And they, I had the job of, first of all, coming up with a technique to measure the separation between the head and the disc and determine if, well, they said, and to prove that contact recording would work. And what I did is I proved contact recording wouldn't work because heads that were actually in contact with the disc wore out relatively quickly. Heads that flew as close as 10 micro inches to the disc would last. The disc was that smooth. So now we had, pardon me, a system where the head was going to fly at 10 micro inches, but it was going to start and stop in contact with the disc. It would literally land on the disc and then take off from the disc when it, when it stopped and started up again. Which means we needed a lubricant on that disc. And a lubricant that would allow it to start for five years and not have a stiction problem. Not have a problem where the head literally got glued to the disc surface and got torn off as it as you started the rotation of the disc. Fortunately, with my work at, IB, uh, with, uh, at Stanford, I had gotten to know people working for NASA. <clears throat> and NASA at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in uh, Dayton, Ohio, were doing lubrication work for space products. Zero vacuum, very cold uh, conditions, very hot conditions. And so I actually went to visit them and we set up a contract, IBM set up a contract with them to help us come up with a high-tech lubricant. And we did. And then we figured out how to put it on the disc and it was a successful program. Now people ask me, where does the name Winchester Disc Technology come from? The product had two disc drives in a single, right next to each other in a single box. And of course, it was a 30-30. And any number of the people working on the project, to them, a 30-30 was a Winchester rifle. So that's where the Winchester disc uh, technology. So the two things that jump out to me from that is, developed at NASA, this is not necessarily going to be a cost-driven enterprise. You know, it is in the sense of everything has to fit within budget. But, you know, at the same time... Um, it's not going to be produced on thousands and thousands and thousands of discs to be able to work it in. So how did you get that to be something that would be viable? And then how did it stick to the disc? Like, is this like a graphene type thing? No, or no, it was like a liquid. liquid. It was a liquid, and it was put on and then rubbed off okay. until you had the right amount. And it was first done with a, by a technician who had exactly the right pressure. And he could tell. I mean, he could feel when the right amount was there. Other people would do it and there was either too much or too little. And okay, how do you take that to a manufacturing <laughs> Very carefully and uh, over trial and error. 
And no, it was it was a lubricant that was uh, commercially available. That's wild. Uh, and uh, we bought a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Because up until we went <clears throat> to magnetic disc, that same lubricant, all the heads started and stopped in contact. I mean, this was a new technology. With even when we went down to four inch discs and two and a half inch discs, it was still starting and stopping in contact mm -hmm. with this with a lubricated surface. Wow. And how long would you say that process lasted where that those drives were being used like that? How many years? Ten years. Ten years. Well, no, right now. I mean, they were still making... When, when did they stop making uh, epoxy-coated uh, iron particle uh, discs and went to thin film discs someplace after, after the turn of the uh, century, yeah. after Y2K? So... Yeah, because I mean, we're we're still seeing like the old old discs. We're still seeing those yeah. here and there. And I moved on to other products because I I became sort of the ad tech research ad tech person in the disc technology business, the mechanical rely mechanical functioning, mechanical reliability. Didn't know a thing about the magnetics uh, or the electronics, and, and didn't care. But. Uh, I did that. So that's the link, that's the story about the Winchester disc technology. So then you go from that uh, disc technology, now all of a sudden you're in the uh, actual data center in the aisles, uh, working on the hot cold aisles. Can you tell us how that you came up with that technology? Yeah. Now this is now we're into the 1990s. Okay. Many stories in between. <laughs> As you could, if you turn around and look at what you see on that picture, everything is in its own dedicated cabinet. Well, we're looking at a black and white photo, a large room with, uh, you know old racks and um, mainframes basically lining a wall. Uh, they're all facing one another, and uh, none of them are back-to-back -back or side-to-side. -side. And basically the entire middle of the room is empty. Yeah. And so even when they lined up, still it was in a dedicated cabinet where the air, cooling air, came in the bottom and went out the top. So they all faced the same direction. And they faced the same direction because... Uh, everybody liked all the lights, the twinkling lights facing the same direction. Yeah. So they didn't have to wander all through the room to see if everything was working properly. Well, now this product, this new disk storage product, was going to be a drawer product, like a server. It actually fit in a rack. And it was totally contained. It was the first AB power uh, system. It had two hard drives in it. It had all the uh, read-write electronics. It had the control electronics. It had the uh, networking interface electronics in it. And uh, you would mount... This was for the small to medium business people. And they could mount as many as they needed, order more if they needed. The problem was the air went in the front and came out the back. So now I have rows of these things. And the hot air goes out the back and goes into the intake of the next row. And it wasn't too long before you had a input air temperature problem affecting the performance and the reliability. So then what we did, we did any number of things, but the key ones were we separated. We moved space the rows out. And if you space the rows out, so instead of having a four-foot aisle, you had a six- to eight-foot aisle, we could get enough cold air in. But now you could only put half the equipment in the room. That didn't work. That wasn't acceptable. So then we took turning vanes on the back in order to get the mm -hmm. air to turn and go up. Worked on the bottom half of the <laughs> subsequent row, exacerbated the problem at the top. 
So it was, oh my God, what are we going to do? In that same week, this is a true story, I woke up one morning and, and with the idea, we just turn every other row around. That's what I mean. Yeah. I, mean, I literally, it, I dreamt the solution. Yep. And I mean, it took some fine tuning, but that's the way it was. It, first of all, it was front aisle and back aisle. And then we realized uh, in working in data in, in computer rooms that in fact now you had all the cold air coming in one aisle and all the heat being exhausted out of the other. That's where the hot it tr- transferred transformed from uh, front aisle back aisle to hot aisle cold aisle cold aisle. Oh, that's awesome! And that was and you in, couldn't uh, just... discovered in 1993. Product was announced. In 1995, so it was made known to the public in 1995. By 2000, it was a generally accepted uh, layout. And by 2005, it became a quasi standard as to how you lay out equipment. Now, in addition to that, about that same time, I had taken on a job. I had gotten out of management and taken a job as an engineer, looking, working on the infrastructure installation part of IBM's uh, products, as well as doing troubleshooting. So I was spending a lot of time in computer rooms, and all of a sudden it found out that many of the uh, accepted norms in computer rooms were totally false. The idea that the air underneath the raised floor was uh, a homogeneous mixture was false. That every, every air handler had a plume that they protected. So if that air handler failed, you had to turn it off before the redundant capacity could fill in and take up the load in that room. That's where the idea of airflow in one direction came from. And then I discovered what we call bypass airflow. Why does a computer room have two and a half to three times the cooling capacity operating that they have heat load? And one of the reasons is that 60% 60% of the conditioned air coming out of the cooling units wasn't getting to the heat load. It's it was, suck the rest it was wandering around the room, getting mixed with the hot air, and getting back to the air handler without going through the equipment. Because of too many perforated tiles, perforated tiles in the wrong place, huge cable cutouts under uh, the equipment. So that was bypass airflow. The other one was recirculation. Recirculation was the hot air that came out of the back of the servers and immediately wrapped around within the cabinet itself and went went through the servers multiple times before it got back. Both of those systems led to hot spots. And the unfortunate situation in those days was if a customer had hot spots in their computer room, what did they do? They went to their vendor air conditioning vendor and says, I got hotspots. And the vendor says, obviously you don't have enough cooling capacity. And they spent tens of thousands of dollars and add more cooling capacity. And when they were finished, they had more hotspots than they had when they started. The idea was you, you this is when Dr. Bob started coming up with this this list of best case practices. You eliminate the bypass airflow. You eliminate the recirculation and you tune the cooling capacity to the uh, heat load in the room. And you can turn off, we've, in certain cases, we've turned off 50% of the cooling capacity. 
subsequent to that with the introduction of variable speed motors for fans it's even better because now I can instead of turning off half the cooling capacity I can turn the fan speed down to 50% capacity and only use 12% of the energy I don't say 50% I say 90, you know, 87% of the energy going into uh, the cooling system so these are the things that you know, I've worked on for uh, years and, and come up with. And I can walk into a uh, data center, into a computer room, and I've been there 15, 50 minutes, and I already have probably a list half a page long of things that can be done quickly, relatively inexpensively, return on investment of less than a year, and they can save it at least 30% of their energy. And what that does is that gives them capacity. That gives them power capacity, that gives them energy capacity, that gives them cooling capacity, so they can grow their business without a capital expense. Yeah. I mean, that's just foul money at that point and increased performance. Yes, 60% bypass airflow. That's why they have two and a half to three times the cooling capacity operating that they have heat load. Now, when you're tracking the air coming through the server or you know whatever for the um, for like bypass airflow, is that how does on a physical level, like how does that get tracked through like just fan sensors in different areas or through like smoke? Or? Well, uh, yeah, you can do it through smoke. One of the easiest ways is every uh, vendor who makes servers or makes disk or storage products has they publish the spec as to what the airflow. Mm -hmm. through the product is at a given input air temperature. And so you, you get a list, an inventory list of uh, what's in the room and add it up. And all of a sudden, you know, well, that's only 40% of the air that the air handlers are circulating in the room. The rest of it's bypass airflow. There you go. And the uh, recirculation is you measure the input air temperature. You know you're putting, right now, 77 degree air into the room. Mm -hmm. Why is the input air to this uh, piece of equipment 85 or 90 degrees? Right. And you can calculate the volume of air that's going through it to work out where that's yes. coming from and if it's coming from itself. Yeah. So the key yeah. was you literally turn off cooling capacity to get a better uh, cooling situation, to eliminate hot spots. You don't add more cooling capacity, you turn off cooling. 60s, we talked about the 1990s. Yeah. What happened in between? <laughs> what happened in between was uh, two uh, amazing projects for me. One was we had a disk drive project that I had, I was a manager, and I had field reliability and performance responsibility, mechanical-wise, for that. And we were having head crashes. Customers don't like head crashes. And we started, I put together a team, and management, senior management came to me and said, Sullivan, this is your problem. Find out what it is and fix it, in about that tone of voice. And so I brought uh, you know, engineers and uh, material scientists together, and we actually knew what the solution was before we knew what the, what the root cause, source of the problem. It was contaminated, internally generated contamination. And we knew what parts we had to fix. Now, can we do this? I mean, we could do it in a laboratory. 
It worked. Could we do? Can you do this in an operating computer room? I didn't know. I'd been in a lot of computer rooms. I'd never dealt with the operations people in the computer. I, I dealt with the you know, facilities uh, people more than in the hardware planners. So the worst case situation was at IBM Research in Yorktown. So I went to Yorktown, and I won't tell you the whole story. It's beginning of the screen. Uh, I went there and said, "Can you do this in an operating computer room? And these two ladies looked at me like, what in the world do you, you know, <laughs> what do you think? What are you asking us to do? I said, just please look at it. Because it, it's going to, the corporation's success in this product depends on it. And about three weeks later, I got a call and said, we have a procedure. So I went back and we presented it to IBM Research Management. And they very skeptically uh, agreed to be an alpha test, especially when I told them that their failures were going to continue to occur unless they did this. And it took 10 days, round-the-clock work, and we fixed the problem. Fixed the problem, tearing machines apart, rebuilding them, putting them back together again. And there was not a failure in that process. And then we took it to a couple of other IBM sites to beta test. And again, once the team was brought up to speed and a schedule was put together between operations people moving data, IBM service people changing parts, <coughs> or no, the uh, we had a test that sort of measured the uh, health of the hardware. And that that determined what hardware was going to be replaced. It was replaced second shift. That replaced with second shift. And then third shift, they rolled data again. Around the clock, seven days a week. And then we took it to customers. And, of course, the customers were very skeptical. And I said, listen, we've, I mean, this isn't something we've never done. We've done it now in at least three, four sites. And it's worked. Yes, it's a lot of work. And some, in some cases, IBM brought in spare equipment so that they could move data to get started. And we went through, it was only happening in the United States, but we went through every IBM customer in the United States that had this product installed. And we implemented the solution, the fix, and it formed. They had no failures in the process of doing it, and they had no failures after so that was one that I thought pretty good. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you talking to thousands of customers for this? Mm-hmm. Are you talking hundreds or thousands of customers? Thousands of customers. Amazing. Many, many hundreds of customers. Wow. Uh, and then the next one was a problem, a contamination problem. That wasn't IBM's problem. But in fact, it, of course, back in those days, everybody blamed. You had a problem, it was IBM's problem. If you had IBM equipment, it was IBM's problem. And this one was a contamination problem with something called zinc whiskers. These are fine needles of uh, pure zinc that literally grow off of an electroplated zinc surface. And they were getting broken off. One of the sources was the floor tiles, the raised floor tiles that had a sheet metal pan on the bottom. 
And it could either be hot dip galvanized, which didn't have the problem, or electroplated, which didn't have the problem. And what would happen is these whiskers would grow. And then due to handling the floor tiles, which was never done nicely, easily, uh, they would break off, get airborne, get ingested into the equipment, and cause failures. So now it was, first of all, it was to find them. Because the parts would come back to be failure analyzed. There's nothing wrong with parts, because the party, the, the, these whiskers had moved. In, in unloading, wrapping, shipping, unloading, remounting parts, just nothing. That's a good part. Why'd you place that one? So I, again, my material scientists came to the rescue and identified what it was. So then we knew what it was, but at that time we didn't have any idea what the uh, source was. So again, I put together a team of IBM engineers material scientists and service people. And we started visiting customers who were having the problem in spades, and sure enough, it only took us one evening to find the source. Because we knew what we were looking for. Yeah. It's just what's the common denominator. <clears throat> and then it was, okay, now what do we do about it? It's the customer's responsibility. But IBM's mantra was, we're a team. We're going to do this together. I mean, how were we going to do it? And fortunately, there were some uh, IBM service, field service people working out of Dallas that put me in touch with a company that cleaned data centers. They're the data center janitors, the high-tech janitors. And so I went to them and told them of the problem. <laughs> the owner of the company looked at me and says, Sullivan, you're full of it. I mean, this problem, this can't exist. And I showed him. And then we worked with him because he he knew how to work in a computer. And we came up, primarily he his company came up with a technique of isolation. And sometimes shutting equipment down, where floor tiles were removed and isolated on the spot and removed from the room in the greatest care and then they went in with these super filtered vacuum cleaners and vacuumed under the floor vacuumed uh, in what they could reach inside the equipment vacuumed overhead the whole room was and then wiped down everything and we got through the first one just holding our crossing our fingers and we did not create an outage where we created an outage where we went in, now IBM, the room was clean. Now IBM was going to go in and clean the inside of the equipment. We caused more problems uh, taking the, taking the equipment apart and putting it back together again than uh, anything else. So we said, no, we're going to leave it and we'll, we'll eat the failures that do occur. Never had a failure. Never again had a failure. So that was five years of my IBM career that I'd probably like to forget. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was a major, a major project. That's wild. Yeah. And coming from, like, looking at it from today and think about just how these types of, like, how these types of failures and has this, do you feel like, is this something that's changed a lot due to, you know, different filtration systems or anything else? Or is this it was a fluke. It was a fluke in that the people that built the floor tiles, of course, used uh, scrap, sheet metal, 
Mm. I mean, these weren't species, even rolls of that uh, were uh, overproduction or uh, out of spec or something like that. Oh. And they, they'd order a roll of sheet metal. And it would either be hot, deep galvanized or electroplated. They didn't care. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, I'm sure. And so if it was electroplated, they'd stamp it out and sell the tiles. It was it was the Chevrolet of uh, tiles because the Cadillacs were stamped stamped steel frames and power coated. This was, this was just bare sheet metal with a wood core in the middle. Uh, and it took... Floor tile manufacturers at least two years. So oh, no, that can't be a problem. <laughs> and finally, it was we've discovered the so, we've discovered the solution uh, for the problem. This is the floor tile manufacturers now saying we've discovered the solution for the problem. And there's still I still get one or two inquiries a year. Wow, there are tiles out there because they were supposed to be destroyed. The contract was that the tiles would be destroyed, and a whole lot of them went back into the warehouse. Uh, of course, I've been you know, 32 years with IBM, and when I was in the uh, infrastructure uh, data center performance business, I kept running in to these two people, Ken Brill and Pitt Turner. Ken Brill was the owner of Computer Site Engineering and the Uptime Institute, and Pitt Turner was his uh, key, key lieutenant. And we realized that we were doing the same thing. We were studying problems in the data center. Typically, I was studying because there was performance problems. They were studying it because of errors, failures that had occurred. And so we got to know each other, and it says, you know, Bob, when are you going to retire? And of course, with IBM, you needed to have 30 years to have a uh, non-age uh, compensated pension. After 30 years, you got full pension. And so in in uh, 1998, I got 30 years. They said, can you come to work? I said, no, because they just put a new pension plan out and to be fully invested, I needed another two years. So that came brought us up to the year 2000. And uh, there were some management changes within, I, within my management chain. And I basically said, I'm out of here. Because I had a place to go. And I went to work as a, as a consultant to, I never worked for as a consultant to computer site engineering and the Uptime Institute for 10 years. And with them, we uh, <coughs> developed uh, ideas, we developed techniques, we developed education programs, and that I participated uh, in. I was their educator, talking at conferences, putting on seminars, teaching courses. And when uh, the 451 group brought out uh, Computer Site Engineering in the Uptime Institute in 2010, they didn't uh, employ outside consultants. So I went out on my own and went more toward education, educating the world. My objective at that point was to educate the world, and it still is to educate the world. I realize that I'm not going to be totally successful, but I'm not going to stop trying. And this is where I came up with a new title. And this is Dr. Bob, Eminent Educator. <laughs> so that's that was that was that. Yeah. I just continued what I'd done for, with IBM for ten years, and, and took it to to broader, greater uh, heights with uh, computer science. Well, one of the common things I hear when you're speaking is 
you, you presented a problem at IBM, and the first thing you kind of went to was I put a team together, and we worked together to solve the problem. And I see how that kind of rolled into you know management training, motivational training, and you know becoming an author and public speaker. It feels like it's just kind of a natural progression from your years of, of, of management and learning there. Oh yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> so in this, um, in your goal to educate the world. Um, so my first obvious question here is, like, in the current data center, like, for data center managers now, what do you what do you feel like are some of the biggest problems that we're still seeing now, or if it's new problems that have kind of come up recently in more mo- in modern data centers? What are you seeing now that's when you go into a data center? Two things. What one basic source of a problem, and that is. Uh, undermanned, not properly trained manpower. In most companies, a the IT department is a cost center. It is a service. And the service that has nothing to do with the core values or the products that are being produced by the company. So therefore, it is a drain of capital and operating expenses. So, how do I up my bottom line? Well, I reduce the costs that are not directly related uh, to the company's values and uh, products. And so, data centers are getting stretched. The other one is, it is a uh, data center operations, the facilities as well as the operations staff are getting older. It's It's a graying population. And unfortunately, that graying population has the experience, and they should be, by senior management, edict, training new people coming in. But they look at it a different way. If, in fact, they're going to cut the uh, money coming in to support the IT department, who's going to go first? It's the people that have the most seniority collecting the biggest salaries. So why should I train somebody to have me lose my job sooner? And the other one is, is the young people. So people, new people coming into the business. In the facility side, many of them are uh, tradespeople. They're electricians and they're plumbers and they're HVAC people who know what they're doing working with that equipment, but they've never done it in a data center before. And it's different in a data center. If you go, whoops, in a home or an office building, you know, people get warmer, uh, they, the power goes out for a, a few minutes. You do that in a data center, and yeah, it, millions of dollars are at stake. And they think that they can pick it up on the job. But if there isn't anybody to guide them on the job, how are they going to Then there's no on-the-job training. So what, it, what it comes down to is manpower and the training of that manpower. Now, Gartner Group and the Uptime Institute and a number of other people have done surveys of outages in anywhere from two-thirds to 75% root cause is human-related. Now, that might be senior management that doesn't properly fund the IT department. That's a human error. To the uh, junior engineer who's on third shift and something happens, and he tries to fix the problem, and in fact augurs it into the ground. 
So what I'm looking for is, what I would love to see is, I get back to my co-op experience. That is, when you're, edu- when you're if you are going through an education process, it's almost like a uh, apprentice program, where you spend some time in school and the rest of the time actually on a job. Internships. Either part-time while you're going to school or full-time between times going to school. And it has to be where you're doing applicable work. And hopefully you get paid for it. Because that's how you're going to learn. The basics, uh, the background, and the hands-on. And one of the things that you might learn is you don't touch that stupid. You don't try to... If it isn't... If the center isn't down, you don't try to bring it back from a partial... Uh, failure. You wait for somebody. That kind of, that's, that's the, those are the kinds of things you learn. So it's a combination of education and on-the-job experience to bring new people in. And that's not happening. Another part of my uh, goal as an eminent educator is to get people educated. That might go along those lines. And that, I mean, I base that on, as I said, my experience as an undergraduate. Now, the other thing is the one of, okay, I have a legacy data center. Do I build, do I rebuild my data center and stay here? Do I go to a co-location, either a housing or a hosting? The housing is where I go to a new facility and it's my equipment, my software, and my IT people, my operations people are still running. I go to a housing, no, that's the housing. I go to a hosting facility and I just move my data. And the people running the COLA are actually, it's their equipment, their facility, they're operating the facility, they're, op, they're, they're my operations staff. That is an ideal situation to come into if I am a small business and want to move to the cloud because I need an interface to the cloud. I don't have the expertise in-house with that. So I go to a, I go to a, a, a hosting, Colo, and they're my interface to the cloud. And I made a prediction back in uh, probably 95 that said, you know, a, anything less than a 10,000 square foot data center wouldn't be replaced. Now, people have proven me wrong, but in general, that's been the case. You go, to, you go to a cola or just go straight to the cloud. So that's what I see happening. The cloud's going to get bigger. The other thing that's going to get bigger is this uh, high-performance computing software-defined uh, interfacing, where, in fact, my operations people don't make decisions as to what's going to be handled on what equipment, under what application, and all the rest of it. That's all done through software. And now I have multiple data centers, even if it's only two, where all my applications and all my data are stored in two locations, and they are, and they do interact with each other on a real-time basis. That now gives me more more reliability than if I have a 2N plus 2, 2N plus 1 separate data centers relying on infrastructure to give me the availability. 
And that's where I see more and more moving in that direction. And the other thing that has to improve, of course, is networking. That is the biggest, that's the, the weakest point in data centers today, is the uh, interconnection. And uh, that, has to, that has to be improved software-wise, primarily software-wise. You're saying networking between, like within the data center itself? Within the data center, but, but between. especially between data, yeah. between data centers, yes. See, the, the software-defined data center only works when multiple data centers are talking to each other. Right. When they stop talking to each other, I just got, I got a lone data center at the end. And I don't have the infrastructure to provide the redundancy that I used to have. And of course, at that point, there's so much lag that it doesn't, it offers zero benefit if that, if that connection isn't strong enough. Yes. No, it has to, I mean, it has to be within the uh, real-time connection yeah. time frame. And uh, it's working. It is working, and it's amazing. Yeah. So I have one question. This is yeah. going back to something way, way earlier. Now, I've got young children. James, I know you do. And I know, obviously, being a kid myself at one point, growing ever further back, you said earlier that you knew you wanted to be an engineer when you were like seven or eight years old. How did you know what an engineer was? And how did you know that that was what you wanted to be? I didn't know I wanted to be an engineer. I just knew I wanted to take things apart and uh, put them back together again. Okay. So I wanted you know I wanted now. to know how they worked. Yeah. That's yeah. what it that's I what it was. I completely understand that. That that was annoying. I didn't I didn't realize I was yeah, I wanted to be an engineer. I just wanted to take things apart and put them back together again. Oh, it's the best stuff on earth. So that's how that's where that Oh that's so, yeah, absolutely. I know certainly for me the taking uh, taking apart was just the sheer joy. And the me putting them back together, I think, was probably my parents one of their biggest frustrations because they didn't do it all that often. They just took it apart. Well, it's easy taking stuff apart. It is. That's, yeah. It is. <laughs> a time to time, yeah. and the patients put it back together. Well, most of the time, I was successful in getting it put back together. It might have taken me months to do, but I was tenacious enough. That I think that yeah, I think that's really one of the that big drivers when you can actually get this stuff back together and just really stick to it until it's done and then it works again. Yeah. What I would like to do is uh, people that hear this podcast and have a data center that is a legacy data center but a functioning data center and they're just sort of scraping along. There are things you can do. What you do is you look for the worst case practices and implement Dr. Bob's best case practices and you will get better performance and reduce your uh, energy consumption in the process by as much as 30%. If, in fact, you're growing your business and need direction on how to grow the business, I can provide assistance there. Uh, if you want to go through the process of, do I go to cloud? Do I go to a hosting facility? Do I go to a housing facility? Uh, do I go directly into the cloud? Uh, I'm not an expert at that, but I can walk you through a process that will certainly help you make that decision. But the key is, if you have a data center that isn't functioning as efficient, effectively and efficiently as you like, get in touch with me, and we will work to get you, because that's my goal, is the effective, efficient data center.
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, you know, honestly, uh, I had a lot of fun talking with you, and it's also just an honor to meet you and just to be here. So uh, I just want to say, too, thank you, James, my co-host. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dr. Bob. It was great hearing all your stories. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate being here. If I can be of any assistance to you in making your data center more effective and more efficient, please contact me, Robert, Dr. Bob Sullivan. It is dr-bob at ix.netcom. That's n-e-t-c-o-m dot com. Area code one dash four zero eight. 776-8873. I would love to help you make your data center more effective and more efficient and save energy. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the LTTB Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please feel free to email us at techbench at liquidtechnology.net. For show notes, visit liquidtechnology.net slash techbench.